This is exactly right. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines, honey. And June's Journey has that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. Explore beautifully designed scenes from the 1920s, like lavish estates and gardens. And don't forget to keep an eye out for hidden clues. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the Detective Club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. June needs your help, but watch out. You never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed, but will you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Hey, boo! It's me, Roz. Happy Pride Month! Of course, that's something that means a lot to me. And I thank you for for always, you know, embracing me as a member of the LGBTQIA plus community. And here at Ghosted by Roz Dresvelez, we celebrate that all year long. And, um... I thank you to all you allies and and members of the LGBTQIA plus community as well. Go back and listen to some more episodes with with all the wonderful queer people I've had on the show and um, spread the word if people are looking for a um, you know queer friendly uh, queer hosted queer-embracing podcast about ghosts. Oh, my God. Okay, this episode today, you guys, I had so much fun. And this is a two-parter, okay? This week, well, first of all, my guest is Andrea Perrin, who famously grew up in the house that went on to inspire the first Conjuring movie. And so we had a lot to talk about. She's my new friend. We, she's got a great sense of humor. She has a lot to say, and I feel like we haven't even scratched the surface. So hopefully I can have her on again in the future. She, so, she sounds down to do it. So uh, this will hopefully be the first of many conversations that I'll have with her on this podcast. And in this first week's uh uh, version of our conversation. We talk a lot about Bathsheba Sherman, who I talked to Amy Bruni about, and it's also there's also uh, some some uh, stuff about Bathsheba Sherman and Amy Bruni's book as well. And um, you know, she's the woman that was made out to be this awful spooky scary witch in the conjuring movie and um so you'll hear a lot about that today and um yeah there's just there's just so much (laughs) and as always i uh have a little bit extra if you want to hear on patreon she tells the story that i first heard in that documentary that came out about Ed and Lorraine Warren 
a couple months back, I think. Not that long ago. What is time? You know, it was at some point there was a documentary that's pretty good. It's on Discovery Plus now. Um, Somebody tells a story about in the house that Andrea Perrin grew up in, her mom bit into an orange and blood started gushing out in like a paranormal way. And so I asked Andrea that story and we talk about that on Patreon. And I also asked her about like when the Amneville horror came out and Ed and Lorraine Warren were on TV and like there was all this talk about, you know, this haunted house case, which came after the original Conjuring uh, case with Ed and Lorraine Warren. And so I was curious what that was like for her to see those those two paranormal investigator people, the Warrens, on TV, be like, wait, those are the people that were over here investigating my house. Like, I don't know. I just, I thought it was an interesting thing to ask her about. So you can hear that on Patreon. And uh, that's patreon.com slash rosdresfelez. And as always, I have a little video this week. It's just a fun little game where I tell, um, I guess I, I guess you could say I do dramatic readings of real encounters or statements about aliens that celebrities have said. And I have you guess which celebrity said that. So it's all fun. Patreon.com slash Ross Okay. Let's get into it. Here's part one with Andrea Perrin. On with the show. I am so good. You and I, we just met, um... Through Patrick Keller, shout out to Patrick, and um, we uh, we talked on the phone the other day, and I had so much fun talking to you. You're you're a blast. I'm what is known as a live wire, and you know, <laughs> I mean, you had me in stitches because at one point, uh, you know, both of us were so wound up, and you said, "Okay, we have to stop because um, you know, I'm paraphrasing uh, because." I'm, you know, this is what, this is the kind of stuff we need to save for the show. And and my response to that was, oh, honey, this doesn't run out. It's not like (laughs) draining a water pipe. You know, Uh, there's, there's more where that came from. Well, yeah, I mean, you wrote about your, uh, just your time living in that, uh, the the famous house that we all know about, and that spanned three books. I mean, you have a lot to say on this, and it's all gold, and I can't wait for it. But another thing that you were telling me is that you love drag queens, and I I, love that. I do, I do. Years and years ago, when I lived uh, just north of Atlanta, in uh, Roswell, Georgia, on the weekends. Uh, the other Roswell. And, and, yeah, the other Roswell, yeah. Um, I um, I used to go into the city with my sister Christine and some of our friends, and uh, we would hit the, the drag bars. And so I got to know all the queens, and oh my God, I would fall at their feet. So talented, so beautiful. Uh, it was it was a blast. It was a period of my life that was just, you know, filled with fun and excitement. And then um, I a few years ago, I went to uh, uh, Gulfport, uh, Gulfport, Florida, um, which is uh, it's near it's south of St. Pete. And they had a great drag bar. Um, so for the time that I spent there, I was I was um, out and about in town with uh, the queens, you know, and it's and the thing that I love about it is my readers, a lot of my readers, you know, they have um, uh, nicknames for me. And one of them is Queen of the Alternate Universe. And <laughs> uh, and I tell them, you know, but I don't have a crown except, you know, on the back of my mouth and it's gold. But it's just for, you know, evening wear. Um, and so every time I go to an event, somebody brings me a tiara or a crown. It's They're precious. They're just lovely. Oh, just, listen to us. Just a couple of queens. I know. Uh, getting spooky. Great. Well, when you come to L.A., you're going to have to uh, come to one of my shows. Oh, I would love to. I truly would. Well, okay. Where do we start in a conversation about you? I mean, 
I'm sure you've talked about this stuff a bajillion times. So Mm -hmm. I hope that we can keep it fun and interesting for you to talk about. Oh, Um, it it doesn't, you know, I'm so, I'm so grateful that anybody, (laughs) I'm one of these humble, grateful souls, you know, I'm just so glad anybody wants to talk to me about anything at all. You know, I would have thought years and years ago that, that this story would have, you know, worn its legs out and become passe. And I'm just so happy when anybody wants me to come on their show. And I do thousands of interviews and they've never subsided. And my books are selling as well now as when the story first came out and sometimes better. Uh, So, you know, I just I look at this as uh, this is my privilege and my pleasure to connect and reconnect with uh, not only my friends and my followers, but to introduce the story to new people. And, you know, even if it's just a handful of people that have never heard of it before, that, you know, aren't, you know, I don't know what planet they would be from, but, you know, didn't know about The Conjuring, didn't know about, you know, the backstory, then this is my opportunity to tell them. So, you know, I'm not bored by it at all. I'll just, you know, I'll just mix it up with you. You can Uh ask me anything, Roz. Believe me, I told you the other day on the phone, there is no, there's no question off the table. None. I'll answer anything. Well, I'm such a horror fan. And, you know, especially like these big budget horror movies, sometimes they just, you know, they come and go. And I know from, you know, being a part of the horror community and going to horror conventions and that movie, I mean, it's been, what, eight years or so since it came out. And it yeah. is still, it still is, it's clearly going to be known as one of the most iconic horror movies, especially in the haunted house paranormal uh, horror movie genre. And then I think that the success of it, which of course has gone on to, uh, you know, a series of other films, the third one coming out like very soon, uh, the it has caused people to now be more interested in the Warrens and you and the real story. And that's what I really want to get into today. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, the real story behind The Conjuring is so intense um, and so complicated, so spiritual in nature. Uh, I think of it as a love story with a wicked supernatural twist. In fact, I think of our real story as an odd combination of the exorcist meets little house on the prairie. Um, (laughs) And, and so, you know, when they, the screenwriters for the conjuring, uh, Chad and Carrie Hayes, their twin brothers, lovely people um, read my books. They freaked out. They were like, we have to include this, you know, this can't just rely uh, predominantly on, the uh, case files of the Warrens. We need to include some of what's real in this story into the story. Mm -hmm. And they desperately wanted to do so. Unfortunately, every time they attempted to incorporate elements of the truth into the story, it scared the execs at Warner Brothers and New Line Cinema so much that they told them to take it out. They (laughs) actually... uh, submitted their screenplay seven times and seven times it was rejected and they were told to delete anything that came out of my books because you know even studio execs are fear-based carbon units they were trying to get a pg-13 rating which they didn't get anyway and they were trying not to literally scare people out of the theater And so based on their reaction, their personal reaction to our true story, they told the screenwriters that they had to take it out. So the um, the Conjuring screenplay is um, kind of an interesting amalgamation between the case files of Ed and Lorraine Warren um, cherry picking what they felt was safe from my books. And then the screenwriters, Chad and Carrie, kind of conjured up a whole third story. And that's what became The Conjuring. 
Mm. So it bears no actual resemblance to the truth. And the portrayal of my family um, is um, is inaccurate uh, is at, at times in the extreme. Um, but I, I don't mean for that to sound critical in any way, because they were trying to do something that was quite literally impossible. They were trying to compress a 10 year period into a two hour film. And with the focus being on Ed and Lorraine Warren as one of their uh, primary cases. And before Ed died, he told Lorraine that he wanted her to move heaven and earth to get the Perrin family story told. He was on the record um, verbatim as saying it was the most intense, most disturbing, most compelling, and most significant of all of the investigations that they ever conducted. So when James Wan read my books, he's like, how the hell do I not know about this? You know, he he was an, uh, an aficionado of the Warrens. He was like totally into what they were doing and how they were doing it. And he followed them for, uh, well, for practically for as long as he was alive. Um, and they were, you know, were well into their career when he was a kid. So he naturally gravitated toward them as being pioneers in the paranormal. And he just, he's like, how do I not know about this? When I first met with him in Hollywood, um, you know, he asked me, we we're sitting at a production meeting and he's like, you know, why was this not out in the world? And I said, there's a very simple reason. My mother said, no, that's why. And then 30 years later, I picked up a pen and started writing our truth, not even knowing if there was going to be anyone out there that was interested in hearing it. Yeah, that's what I, I always, um, I have a lot of conversations on this show about, it's like a, a weird uh, formula of things to happen for something like the Amneville horror to become what it is, because you have to have people that live in a house that are going to talk about it and want to go on TV and, you know, it's, that's not always the case. There's a lot of people that live in these situations that may never even publicly share them. And so, I mean, when this was happening, your family, that your parents were not the the personalities to say, let's go on TV. Right. Or. Oh God, no. Oh my God. No. In fact, that's one of the major discrepancies in the film. Because, uh, well, there were several, and we can cover them all, but the one that my mother was kind of shocked by, she never went to see it in the theater. My mother's very reclusive. Uh, She doesn't, uh, like, she's like Dorothy Gale in The Wizard of Oz. She doesn't really want to go outside her own yard. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, And yet, you know, she's been to Oz and back, except that she's been to hell and back. And um, and she's been portrayed by Lily Taylor, which is yeah, iconic. Yeah, Lily was wonderful in the role. I think she got totally screwed not getting nominated for some kind of an award for her portrayal. Oh, um, I thought Hollywood's it was Hollywood's idea of horror. I know, very powerful performance that she delivered. But, uh, you know, the thing is that we didn't know who the Warrens were when they showed up at our door. My mother did not go seeking out the Warrens. We didn't know who the young team of paranormal investigators were that pulled into our yard in August of 1973 and why they were there. And to this day, we cannot explain the mystery around that because uh, a young and interestingly twin brothers, kind of like the screenwriters, Um, were Chad Chad and Carrie Hayes were the screenwriters, but the twin brothers that showed up at our house uh, in 1973 were Keith and Carl Johnson and their team of paranormal investigators from Rhode Island College. And Keith said that my mother called him and asked him to come out to the house. And my mother never called anybody and asked anyone 
to investigate what she didn't even understand herself. What? Um, and he said, but but I recognize your voice, Mrs. Perrin. And she said, dear, I don't know who called you, but it wasn't me. And even saying those words now sends a chill up my spine because me my too. mother was already being oppressed by a spirit that, you know, they can be very powerful. And my mother was already in transition. The spirit in the house that wanted my mother out, that just loathed her and threatened her and wanted her out of that house, figured by my own assumption that if she couldn't get her out, then she would go within. And my mom's voice was changing. She was wearing vintage clothing. She was using archaic English terminology in her, you know, matter of fact, normal day to day speech. Um, and at first we thought it was because she was doing so much research on the house that she was kind of getting it into her head and, you know, reading that language so much that she was incorporating it into her normal patterns of speech. But it was something more than that. And I do believe that the visage of my mother called Keith Johnson, but it wasn't my mother. God, I like that version. I like, <laughs> I like the idea of, a, of uh, seeing in a horror movie a, a ghost calling somebody or something. Yeah. Well, you know, I've had numerous incidents where um, I've been in contact with Bathsheba Sherman through Spirit Box. And she uh, will attempt to throw my voice, to use my voice instead of her own. And one of the sessions that I was doing with my friend George Lopez was um, with her. Wait, 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 wait. The actor, not, comedian George Lopez? No, uh, oh. my friend George Lopez is the sit on your ass comedian, not the stand up one. Oh. Um, he's, uh, yeah, he lives here in Florida. And he, uh, yeah, George is always most comfortable if he's down in a chair and completely out of the public eye. Um, so he's he's the antithesis of the original George Lopez. <laughs> well, the famous George Lopez lives in a haunted house. Yes, I know he does. Yeah, and I really want to talk to him at some point. But oh, you um, should. Yeah, you should hook us up too. I'd like to have a conversation with him. Yeah. Um, so, but anyway, I was at George's house. Uh, I don't know, probably about six or seven years ago, and we were doing a spirit box session, and my voice came through that box and George was like, oh, hell no. You know, we'll talk to you, but you can't throw Andrea's voice. You need to use your own voice or we're not doing this. And all of a sudden the voice of it sounded like a, like a child uh, came through and, and Bathsheba was a very diminutive um, person. She was a very small framed woman with a high pitched voice. And I have her on several recordings coming through and communicating with us. Well, that's how she came through. And once she finally did, we had a very interesting conversation. And George asked her at one point what one word she associates with me. And instantly her response was love. And, I, and I know why, because I've been her defender. You know, I, she was made out to be the villainous, you know, to be the the offending spirit in The Conjuring. Yes. And that was based on Mrs. Warren's interpretation of things. But she was not the one that was haunting and taunting my mother. And in fact, uh, was not even born yet when the spirit that was coming after my mother was long dead. Um, the You know, my father believes that it's actually Mrs. John Arnold. Um, who was found hanging in the barn in 1797 at the age of 93, uh, who took her own life after her husband passed away. Um, and that was according to the town historian who came and met my parents and told them as much as he knew of the history of the farm. Uh, you know, now the thing is, none of them ever walked up to any of us and said, oh, hello, my name is. You know, there was literally only one self-identifying 
spirit at the farmhouse. And he was a, a little boy uh, that my sister played with. You know, that was one element uh, that they picked up in The Conjuring that was accurate. Um, but, you know, they portrayed my family as godless heathens, as juxtaposed to the devout Roman Catholic Warrens, when nothing could have been further from the truth. We were all born and raised Catholic. My father had intended on serving his tour in the Navy and then coming back and going into the seminary to become a priest. He was you know, born and raised in the parochial Roman Catholic tradition, had served as an altar boy for you know, the bulk of his youth and um, had been you know, very influenced by a couple of priests who he admired greatly and he wanted to follow in their footsteps. And it was only during you know, that period where he was in the Navy and met my mother that all bets were off about the priesthood because he fell in love with her. And so, you know, bingo, that's where we all come from. Mm -hmm. But um, we were not um, godless. You know, we weren't parent pagans or godless heathens. You know, although pagan does, you know, pagan is a religion. Yeah. Um, and, you know, more, more closely akin to what I practice, uh, because, you know, I say, if you want to know God, go to the woods. But I just... I look at the, you know, that was the thing my mother took the greatest exception to. She thought that the whole possession um, and exorcism scene in the film, and she watched it on DVD one night, she walked into the parlor and she's like, okay, I'm ready to watch it. And I said, well, you know, mom, we were going to watch the princess bride. And she's like, just put the movie in. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, we're going to watch the princess bride for like the 50th time. And she's like, no, you can quote the script on that. I'm ready to see the movie now. I want to see me. Yeah, I know I'm it. So really. she, oh, she's so funny. And, uh, oh, when I showed her, I got just as an aside, when I showed her the trailer for the first time, the initial trailer that came out for the film, um, she stood there and we had it up on a big Mac and, and she is watching this thing and, with her arms crossed and her foot tapping. And when it was all done, she said, I wouldn't have been caught dead in that skirt. <laughs> if you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines, honey. And June's Journey has that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. Explore beautifully designed scenes from the 1920s like lavish estates and gardens. And don't forget to keep an eye out for hidden clues. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the Detective Club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. June needs your help, but Watch out. You never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed. But will you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. That is something we talk about this all the time on this show. Um getting reenacted in because yeah. you know we talk i talk to a lot of people that have been on celebrity ghost stories and various shows where they get reenacted and that is one of my favorite things is when people are like my hair isn't like that i wouldn't wear that yeah, yeah. well we didn't listen to music like that we listened to hippie music what's wrong with these people you know i oh god she's so funny she's so sweet um, well, but, but that yeah. whole the whole Bathsheba Sherman thing, um, we talked to Amy Bruni about that. Yeah. And I know she talks about it in her book yeah. about 
just, you know, it's it's almost, uh, it's unfortunate to see how um, somebody's image, even though they're long past, can be portrayed and skewed. And, and there's been yeah. a number, uh, you know, that happens all the time. There's so much folklore that yeah. gets uh, gathered around people that it's like, they, they, that's not who they were, you know? I don't know how I would feel about that if <laughs> my spirit yeah. was lingering around and everyone had something bad to say about me. Well, she's pissed. I can tell you that. Um, you know, and I, and right after the movie opened, some moron, some idiot decided to go into the cemetery where she was buried, is buried and desecrate her gravestone. And when I found out about that, I went immediately to uh, one of my producers. I said, I need to make a video right now. He said, okay, okay, okay. And, um, and I put it out and, you know, I basically said, uh, you know, here's the thing. I don't know who you are, but she does. And woe be unto you for going into that cemetery on sacred ground and using whatever you did to destroy a 150-year-old gravestone. This will haunt you for the rest of your life. And I was, I was just, you know, I, I really think that's why Bathsheba cares for me because yes i did write in the books what you know people said in town about her uh what the historian said about her but which is what it well when he came he knew her when he was a child who did Um, the historian historian did yes he had lived in that town lifelong his name was mr mckeechern and he was in his 90s when we met him, she died in 1885. We moved there in 1971. So you do the math. He was, she died when he was 10 years old. And she had a reputation as a very mean spirited woman. Um, She was born in 1812. She died in 1885. Um, and she uh, was apparently quite cruel to her farmhands, um, would beat them, would starve them, would, uh, you know, I mean, when he spoke of her, he would drop his eyes. He wouldn't even look directly at you. It was, uh, it was like it, it pained him to tell the story of her. Um, she was not an Arnold. She never lived at the farmhouse. Um, She was a product of a union between the Thayer family and the Taft family, both families of extraordinary means, both um, there was a president Taft uh, right from her bloodline. Um, And uh, the Thayers basically helped build Brown University. Thayer Street is probably the most famous street in Providence. Um, And how she hooked up with Judson Sherman, a farmer, out in the backwoods of Harrisville, Rhode Island, you know, nobody will ever know. But she was a young woman um, when she moved there, probably 16 or 17 years old when she married. And, you know, and that was considered late back then because life expectancy was around 45 years old. And so she um, had a reputation that preceded her when we moved to the farm and Mr. McEachern told my mother that um, at some point she was accused of having um, taken the life of an infant while at our home at the Arnold estate. And we don't know if she was babysitting, if she was visiting and she had one of her own children with her. We don't know. And I'd be the first one to say, you know, there are huge glaring holes in this story. Um, But, you know, piecing it together, um, he said that she was accused uh, upon examining the infant's body. It was found by the doctor that there was a needle that had been impaled at the base of its skull and the cause of death was listed as convulsions. That's what he told my mother, which absolutely 
unnerved her, appalled her. Um, but then there was apparently some inquest. The town that we lived in was not even incorporated then. It was just a smattering of villages. So there was an inquest in the town seat of Chipachet, which is actually now uh, the town seat in Gloucester, um, Gloucester, Rhode Island, the town just south of Burlville. And there was an inquest that involved a judge. Uh, there was something written up in a local paper. My mother found uh, an article about it in archives that were actually stored in Worcester, Massachusetts. Um, and she included it in her notebook of you know, historical records, births, deaths, you know, the, all the different certificates when she was doing <clears throat> uh, research on the house. And Mrs. Warren asked for that notebook to make Xerox copies of everything in it. And my mother never saw it again. So mm -hmm. she was working from memory in terms of telling me this to put it into the book. But according to uh, the inquest, she was absolved of responsibility. Um, and if she did something wrong, then she talked herself, you know, talked her way out of it. But, uh, you know, th that was back at a time when things could, you know, terrible accidents could happen. There was a sewing basket in every room. Uh, we don't know if it was an infant or a toddler, if, the, you know, a baby had been laid down in the soft of a, a yarn, a basket of yarn and a terrible accident happened. We don't know. Right. And I just don't think that it's right to accuse someone of murder if you don't have any evidence of that. So the judge said, no, there's, you know, basically there's nothing to see here. This looks like it must have been some kind of an accident. And but in the court of public opinion, Bathsheba was tried and convicted and lived a long and miserable life. And, you know, just 100 or so years earlier, being called a witch in New England, just up the road in Salem would get you killed. Uh, that's uh, still a very dangerous word to throw around in some parts of the world. Yeah. Women die every day on this planet somewhere for being accused of being a witch. Well, because in the movie, what it, what was how how was she portrayed inaccurately? I mean, I'm trying. It's been like about a year since I've seen the movie, but I'm trying to remember. She was a witch in the movie. Is that right? Or yeah, well, that's you know kind of how. Uh, they portrayed her um, and she took tremendous exception to that. But her biggest uh, gripe was she was really angry that a man played her and that she was so ugly and hideous because Bathsheba was actually quite beautiful. And in the research that I did about her, um, I surmised that one of the reasons why she was accused of selling her soul to the devil for eternal youth and beauty and, and sacrificing a baby to do it was because the women, um, some of the women in town uh, were threatened by her and the men would often gaze upon her with rapacious eyes. So she was a threat. Mm. Um, and, you know, had there been any evidence any proof whatsoever that Bathsheba Sherman was a practicing witch and that had done something as hideous and heinous as taking the life of a baby. She would not be buried in hallowed ground, hallowed ground in the middle of the Riverside Cemetery in Harrisville, Rhode Island, next to her husband with three tiny little graves right True. beside hers because three of her four children didn't live past the age of four. Wow. And that was not that unusual. That's not, you know, any kind of implication that she killed off her kids as she had them at all. You know, common cold could take you out in the 1800s and prior to that, you know, even today, you know, I mean, let's face it, we're in the midst of a battle with a new coronavirus. You know, it's, it's, um, it's shocking to walk through the cemeteries of New England, the early cemeteries, 
you are there's not a chance there's a guarantee that you are going to trip over a tiny little gravestone that doesn't even have a name carved on it because it was considered bad luck to name your baby before it was a year old god <laughs> oh can my you god. imagine now having children and going through that whole process of bringing a new life into the world only to see the common cold kill it. Right. So you, um, how often do you talk to her or have you been in contact with her spirit? I've spoken with her through spirit box sessions several times. Um, And so she, I mean, I don't know how it works in the ghost world, but she has uh seen the movie or like she knows about the movie she knows yeah she knows and uh i was a few years ago i was giving a lecture near her gravestone only had about maybe 20 or 30 people with me uh and i was just talking about her and what i knew of her and you know i have a whole entire chapter in volume three of my books, House of Darkness, House of Light, and it's called Season of the Witch. And not only does it address what is most likely, you know, I can't absolve her because I don't know for sure, but I certainly have given her the benefit of the doubt. And in that chapter of the book, um, it retraces the entire history of, of that word in use um, and the ramifications of such. And I was talking about that near her gravestone. Uh, I guess it was about maybe four or five years ago. And one of the young men that was at the lecture was um, recording it unbeknownst to me. And when I got back to, uh, to my home, he called me up and he said, Andrea, you're not going to believe this. He's like, oh my God, wait till you hear this. I said, well, you know, Cody, you know, wait till I hear what? And he sent me an audio clip of a disembodied voice of Bathsheba Sherman screaming her name aloud over me as I was as I was lecturing and no one heard it. But it was recorded on the videotape and it was absolutely her voice. (laughs) But you think she sounded mad? I think it was more frustration than anything. Mm-hmm. She screamed Bathsheba, like, I'm here, I'm right here. You know, and, and nobody heard it, but it was captured on tape. He was recording what I was saying and there it was, and it was her. So, you know, I have, uh, you know, and I've mixed it up with her a little bit here and there because, uh, she has a tendency to misbehave, um, but she but you also said that she, respects me. She does. She came through a spirit box with your voice. Is that what you yes. said earlier? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Now th- here's my showbiz wheels turning. We get you on America's Got Talent. You could do a ventriloquist act. <laughs> Smart ass. <laughs> Well, can we talk about like, see, I talk to people that, that live in haunted houses, but it's like, uh, there's just so much here. And usually what we do is we kind of start from the the beginning and, and get into it a bit. So if we could do that as much as you're, you're willing to share, um, I'm curious because you said that your 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 family was Catholic, and and I always think that because I grew up Catholic too, and I always think that Catholic people tend to kind of have a belief in the supernatural. There's lots of supernatural elements to Catholicism. I feel um, so. Before you guys moved in, did you guys believe in this stuff or have any no, it opinions or anything? No, it wasn't on the radar at all. Uh, the closest we ever came to uh ghosts was when mom took old uh linen sheets and cut holes in it so that we could you know go out for halloween um it was (laughs) absolutely not on the radar my mother was drawn to that house for one reason only um as a historian um 
uh, someone who is deeply steeped in in not just American history, but, you know, ancient history. Um, She was fascinated when she saw the place and wanted it because it was one of the last authentic colonial homes left in America. And it is absolutely stunningly beautiful. When the the guy that you guys got it from, did he have anything to say about the paranormal? Well, Mr. Kenyon, I think in his own way, tried to tell my father uh, that there was activity in the house. But my father was oblivious to what he was. He took my dad out for a walk um, just before uh, just before dusk the day that we moved in and he was moving out. And he said, Roger, for the sake of your family, leave the lights on at night. And my father didn't know how to interpret that. Uh, The way that he did interpret it was, you know, this is a huge vacuumous old house that is new to my children. All the bedrooms are upstairs. The um, stairwells are very steep and narrow. And if you don't want your kids falling down the stairs in the middle of the night to go to the one and only bathroom on the first floor, you'd better leave some lights on in the house. That's how his mind, his pragmatic Virgo mind Mm. processed what would otherwise be a rather cryptic comment. Um, And as things were happening in the house, Mr. Kenyon would stop by uh, pretty regularly. And my mother would question him about strange noises and happenings in the house. And she was being very, she was walking on eggshells. She was being very delicate with it too. And he would just pat her on the hand and say, swallows in the chimney, my dear, swallows in the chimney. What what does that mean? Oh, like birds or the chimney making noise? Yeah. You know, he just didn't want to talk about it. But as we lived there, uh, we found out from people that lived. I mean, we had 200 acres, you know, couldn't even see the nearest neighbor's house. But just traveling on the school bus and getting to know some of the other people that lived in the area, uh, we discovered that there was never, ever a time that someone drove past that house in the middle of the night or in the wee hours of the morning that that house wasn't lit up like a Christmas tree on the dark landscape in the remote woods of Harrisville, Rhode Island. Uh, Every single light was on in that house every single night. So when you guys move in, and it's always so interesting when there's a lot of people in, in one house, when the stories start to come out, you know, like mm-hmm. well, I, I experienced something. Oh my God, that happened to me too. Like, where did that start? And how soon did it start? We visited the house a number of times prior from the time my mother found it till we actually owned it, uh, which was about uh, June, July, about six months, uh, maybe less, a little less. Uh, My mom found it in June of 1970. My parents bought it in December of 1970. And we moved in on January 11th, 1971. You guys were in the area at the time or where were you? Yeah, we lived in Cumberland, Rhode Island, which as the crow flies is only about maybe 20, 25 minutes away. Um, But in all of our visits to the farm and to Mr. Kenyon prior to owning it, uh, no one in the family ever remembered seeing anything, hearing anything, smelling anything weird. You know, I mean, there was just no indication at all that there was anything weird or bizarre about that house. It wasn't until the day we moved in. It was almost as though they were waiting in the wings. Mm -hmm. And the day we moved in, I was the one that saw the uh, a full body apparition first, but he appeared as absolutely solid and flesh and blood as any living mortal being to me. Who was and that? And when I walked past him, he was standing in the, the door to the foyer of the dining room. And I walked in with a box that my dad had handed me off the back of the moving truck 
And he said, take this to your mom in the kitchen. Mom had gone around to the kitchen door. She had my baby sister, April, with her. And the rest of us were big enough that we could help move things in the house. So uh, I brought the box in through the parlor door, took a hard right. And there was Mr. Kenyon packing some of his belongings on the dining room table. And I stopped for a moment and greeted him. And then... I turned around and there was this man standing in the corner of the room. And I noticed that he was dressed rather oddly, um, but he appeared absolutely solid to me. What was he wearing? Uh, he was wearing, um, it looked like handmade pants and a linen shirt and kind of a, a handmade vest. Um, and he had his arms crossed. He had one leg up against the wall and he was leaning against the wall and his head was kind of cocked a little sideways with a quirky grin on his face. And he was completely transfixed on Mr. Kenyon and watching him. And as I walked past him, I said, good morning, sir. And he looked right through me like I was an invisible ghost. And, you know, I didn't want to press it. I didn't know who he was. So I walked into the kitchen and I said, Mom, who's that man with Mr. Kenyon? And she said, there's nobody with Mr. Kenyon. His son's on the way, but he's not here yet. So I, I'm sure I just presumed it was a neighbor who had stopped by to say goodbye. And I walked out the kitchen door and walked back around to the moving van. In the interim, my sister Christine walked in and she saw him and walked into the kitchen and said, Mom, who's the man with Mr. Kenyon? And she's like, I don't know what you're talking about. As far as I know, there's nobody with Mr. Kenyon and I can't go look because I'm unpacking boxes so we can have dinner tonight. And so Chris walked out the kitchen door and then Cindy comes in the kitchen and with her box and she says, Mom, who's that? And my mother's like, I don't know. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> and then Nancy, Nancy, I mean, it was mayhem. It's chaos. It's moving day, for God's sake. Yeah. And, um, you know, so. And then Nancy walks in the kitchen and she leans over to Cindy and she says, Sin, did you see that man with Mr. Kenyon? I did, but he just disappeared. And that was our, introduce, uh, our introduction to the paranormal world. <laughs> did you ever see that man ever again? Oh, my God. He was like a member of the freaking family. <laughs> he, was, he was around. all. He was very sweet. He was very sweet. And, you know, he never caused a problem. He never made eye contact with any of us except one time with my mother, just once, um, and acknowledged her and she acknowledged him. Did but, you ever figure out who that was? Um, we don't know for certain, but we think it might have been Johnny Arnold, um, who was uh, who died in the mid-1850s um, and had uh, apparently a drinking problem and uh, he would drink horse liniment um, because it was the percentage of alcohol was so high and um, it killed him. Wow. So at what point do you guys go, wait a minute, I think that was a ghost right away or did you just kind of let it go? Well, none of us knew what a ghost was. We were right. just little kids. Yeah, you're you like, know, he doesn't have on a sheet with holes cut out. So he's just some guy. Yeah. I mean, you know, the closest we ever got to anything supernatural was, you know, coming home from school and watching Dark Shadows. You know, oh, I love Dark Shadows. Oh, my God. Oh, they're so much fun. Um, you know, vampires are very sexy. Not for nothing. But, <laughs> you know, Agreed. they really are. I mean, have you ever seen The Hunger? Oh, with Bowie? Oh, my God. What? <laughs> uh, I mean, that's just about as erotic as it gets. Oh, no, well, there are several, but okay. All right. I digress. <laughs> well, I wait, digress. Go, now that we're on the topic of hot guys, was that ghost hot? Yes. <laughs> well, yeah, but, but, but so he, needed, he needed a makeover with those homemade-ass clothes. Yeah. Well, you know... <laughs> Um, oh, no, I thought you were talking about David Bowie and I was talking about Catherine Deneuve. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, the ghost in your house with the homemade no, clothes, oh, oh. was he, was yeah, he handsome? No, no he, he was, even though he was a relatively young man when he died, he looked much older than he was. 
Um, he was kind of, uh, well, I guess not short for his his time, his era, uh, but he had very, very weathered skin, aged skin, mm. a lot of wrinkles, um, but very sweet blue eyes. Um, and uh, no, so, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, we you know, we don't know for sure. We we may never know. You know, it's not like, you know, they lived in the days of Facebook and Instagram and you knew what they had for dinner every day. And, you know, <laughs> everybody that they were related to or ever slept with or, you know, I mean, it's like right. it, it, there, there's no record of this. You know, there's totally. birth and death certificates and not much else. And you just have to put um, the pieces together. I mean, it's tough. Right. Yeah, it's tough. it is. But, you know, but I've, I've said many times and I think that it bears repeating it's um it doesn't matter who they were in life that they still are is proof of an afterlife yes well and and you believe that the house is a portal right yeah i've described it as a portal cleverly disguised as a farmhouse you know <laughs> it it's uh i mean we never knew i mean it was like oh, god we never knew if it, you know, if it was 1972, if it was 1876, if it was 1740, you know, I mean, we just, we never knew who we were going to see, what time period they would come from. One of the most fascinating things, and I'm jumping years ahead now, but one of the most fascinating things that ever happened in that house uh, was when my mother looked into the dining room and, and saw an entire family having dinner at our table, a woman cooking over a fireplace that had been closed up solid for more than a hundred years when we moved into that house. And there were two men sitting at the table and they had pewter steins in front of them. So it would be, you know, indicative of the 1700s because pewter was outlawed um, for use in, you know, um, for eating or drinking from because of the lead content in the 1800s. And they were sitting there and, and one of them looked into the parlor and saw my mother standing on the hearthstone and he nudged the man behind him and pointed her out and she was the ghost. Right. So she was looking into the past as they were simultaneously peering into the future, which would certainly lead one to think that dimensions can intermingle. Yes. I mean, that's so weird. It's like she time traveled, you know, in their eyes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and vice versa. Yes. Well, and especially yeah. being like, um, you know, very in interested in the history. Uh, as you said, your mom was. Uh, it's it's very odd when you hear about all these different ghosts from different time periods living among you because you're literally living amongst people from history. Like, it's very strange. Yeah, it's, you know, dwelling among the dead um, will challenge you psychologically. You can't sure. help but question your own sanity, to question your own senses. Did I just see that? Right. You know, I mean, it, and, and that was, I asked my sister Cindy one time, I said, Sin, you know, I was, I was writing the books at the time and <clears throat> I wanted everybody's unique perspective and they're all different um, on the experience of the decade that we spent there. And I asked her one time, you know, the, the age old question, what was the scariest thing that ever happened to you? I didn't put it quite that way, but I wanted her to divulge more. And she said the thing that frightened her most about living at the farm was you never knew what was coming next. Yeah. There was nothing predictable. The unexpected wow. was expected. And anything could happen at any time. When Mrs. Warren first came to the house, uh, you know, those the guys, um, Keith and Carl Johnson, Keith Johnson, sought out the Warrens um, at a seminar at the University of Rhode Island in September of 1973 and he's the one that informed them of our family's predicament and then they waited until the night before halloween 
um, in 73 to show up at our door. And when my mother opened the kitchen door, she had absolutely no idea who these people were. Wait, she it was just on Halloween? The night before. Yeah. Oh, and, oh. And I was going to say, she probably thought they were trick-or-treaters. Well, she, you know, my mother was very cordial and had no reason to suspect that this middle-aged couple, you know, posed any threat. And so she figured they were just lost. And so she let them in the house and they identified themselves. And Mrs. Warren walked over to our old black stove and put her hand on the corner of it and covered her eyes. And she said, I sense a malignant presence in this house. Her name is Bathsheba. Now, to her credit, she knew nothing, nothing about the history of the house. So that she plucked that name out of thin air uh, speaks volumes. But then she blamed her for everything that was nefarious that ever happened in the house as though she was the, you know, the lone culprit. And and as though the other spirits you know, had nothing to do with it. And it was I, I believe that the spirit that was, you know, that just ran my mother ragged, clearly, obviously had a broken neck and Bathsheba um, died from a stroke in 1885. Um, so she did not hang from a tree. There was no exorcism in our house. There was a seance that was rather foisted upon my parents at my father's great objection uh, in August of 74, uh, about I think maybe the fifth time that they had come to conduct their investigation. And my father wanted absolutely no part of them. He didn't trust them. He thought that, you know, all of this was BS, that that uh, they were just going to exploit our family. And um, he didn't understand my mother having faith in them and spilling her guts about what had happened at the house. I mean, he was still, you know, trying to deal with it himself. He was just coming out of complete and utter denial of it when they showed up. So needless to say, he was highly skeptical. Um, but they showed up one night with a, a priest and a medium and they had cinematographers and they had an audio specialist. And I mean, they showed up with a whole entourage and I thought my father's head was just going to blow off. Um, he did not want them there. And Mrs. Warren said, your wife is oppressed. And if we do not intervene on her behalf, then she's going to end up in full-blown possession and you're going to lose her. And, uh, you know, he just basically said, you know, I, I don't believe in ghosts. And she just looked at him with venom in her eyes. And she said to him, if you love your wife, you'll let us do this. Well, thank God she wasn't a man because had she been, he would have cold cocked her. Um, and her husband, Ed, and the priest had to remove him from the room and take him into the bedroom and kind of talk him off a ledge. Um, and meanwhile, they took my mother and they put her at the table. And uh, all the four of the five of us of the children were home that night. And we were all told to go upstairs and close our doors and be quiet. Well, you know, you think we stayed up there, <laughs> right. you know? I came down with my sister, Cindy, and we snuck into the front foyer and somebody had pushed the door closed to the dining room, but it was still open a crack about an inch, inch and a half. And all the lights were turned off. Nobody could see us. And what I saw, what I saw happen, um, not only solidified my faith in God as I prayed for my mother's life, but it also taught me that there is pure, unadulterated evil in the world. And it was is with that knowledge that I deliberately choose to live in the light. Mm -hmm. Evil does not, it doesn't dare. My, oh mother, my, my mother was attacked and some would say possessed and perhaps if she was technically it was for a very brief time, mm -hmm. but my mother was attacked at that table because a medium 
who obviously didn't know what she was doing, uh, threw open wide the doors to the netherworld and conjured the spirits and invited everything in to an already supremely haunted house so to determine who the actual culprit was. That is spiritual malpractice. Mm. And whatever it was that came into my mother spoke in a language that does not exist on this planet and likely never did. My mother was screaming and writhing in pain. Her body wadded up into a ball on the seat that in the chair in which she was seated. I mean, literally, Roz, to the to the extent that you would expect to hear her bones breaking. Wow. Um, and and she threw her head back and howled like a banshee. And then her chair levitated and in a fraction of a second, she was tossed in the chair from the middle of our dining room a good 20 feet away into the middle of our parlor. And when her head struck the floor, everyone who witnessed that was quite certain that they had just watched her die. Oh my God. So you want to talk about fucking childhood trauma? There it is. There it is. Right there. Thank you so much to Andrea Perrin. And of course, don't forget... Next week, we will hear way more. Next week, you know, we get into more when the movie was made. And um, we talk about a whole, a whole bunch of other stuff surrounding this story. And uh, make sure you're subscribed and you look forward to that. And as always, if you want to hear a little bit more, go to patreon.com slash Ross and hear her tell the story of her mom and, and the orange incident. And also... Uh, what it was like for her to see Ed and Lorraine Warren on TV when the Amityville Horror came out and all that stuff. Because, you know, Amityville Horror, that was a huge craze in the 70s, you know? That was that was a big deal. I don't know. I, thought, I, I, think, it's, I think it's a fun thing to ask. But uh, her answer may surprise you. Anyway, as always... Please rate the show five stars on Apple Podcasts. And if you have a ghost story, you could leave it in a review or you could just say something nice or not say anything at all. You could also put a ghost story in the Facebook group Ghosted by Roz Dresfalez or send me an email at ghostedbyroz at gmail.com. If you want to be on a listener episode, put in the subject line of the email, listener episode. I'm also on Cameo, Roz Dresfalez. Instagram, Roz Hernandez. And uh, yeah, tell your friends about the show. I love you all, both living and dead. But if I didn't ask you to haunt me, don't haunt me. Okay, bye! Starbanks Avenue, a podcast. <clears throat> A podcast network.